Please open up your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 21. And as you are making your way there, I'm going to pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Our God, we thank you that we get to come to you, open up your Word, and hear from you, and be changed by you from within. Use your Word. To shame us into humility and to shower us with the glorious grace of your gospel. Amen. There's a little piece of Lord of the Rings lore that I've always enjoyed. It's only a paragraph in the middle of a much bigger, uh, much bigger account in. J.R.R. Tolkien's books, it's a very small thing, but it's surprisingly fun. It's a description Tolkien makes of a famous hobbit. Uh, Hobbits, for those of you that are uninitiated outside of the uh, dispensation of grace, are little people, half-sized people who are the heroes of Tolkien's stories. Tolkien tells this story about old Tuke's Took's great grand uncle, Bull Rower. He was said to be the largest hobbit on record, and of course, one of the reasons for this that Tolkien gives is because he's actually able to ride on a horse. But his much more famous life accomplishment was when, was when he went into battle against a great and terrible goblin. And Tolkien says this He charged the ranks of the goblins of Mount Graham in the Battle of the Green Fields and knocked their king, Gulfenbull's head clean off with a wooden club. It sailed a hundred yards through the air and went down a rabbit hole. And then Tolkien goes on, having way too much fun with his food. And in this way, the battle was won and the game of golf invented at the same moment. Seems to be a surprising parallel uh, count, Um, sometimes too surprisingly uh, parallel outcomes can arise from the same incident. That's a cheesy way to say that, but sometimes two very different outcomes can occur at the same time. And and I have a kind of a a two-pronged attack for you today, not just this morning, but also this evening in our evening service at 6.30. Um, Number one, my first aim is to shame us and shame you into humility by your need for grace and to shame us into humbling ourselves before our great God. But my other aim and my other attack, my other purpose is to shower upon you and shower upon us the glorious, unshakable truths of our great and outrageously gracious God. I want to shame you, but I also want to shower upon you. This is why we gather. We gather every week because we need to hear the glorious goodness of our God and the greatness of His grace, the outrageousness of His grace. And that's what we're going to do today, both this morning and this evening. Talk about the outrageous grace of our God. 
I hope to get on your skin a little bit this morning. Irritate you into humility and into thankfulness. We'll get to that in a moment. For now, if you're in 1 Kings, look over at 1 Kings 21 and verse 9. 1 Kings 21 verse 9 is going to be our, our text to begin with. Verse 9 says this, and, and she wrote in the letters saying, Call for a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Praise be to God. Now let's get into this a little bit. If, if you happen to be in Jezreel on this morning, and if you happen to be there sipping your cup of coffee or whatever it is that they drank in the morning, and you happen to just open up your, you know, Jezreel Today newspaper, because I'm sure they had that. Not sure about the coffee, but definitely the newspaper. You'll discover this day that we find ourselves in to be a very unexpected day. And very surprising in the news that comes your way. Now, the article that you would see would be tucked right between updates on the continued conflict between the, the nation of Israel, the northern nation of Israel, and the Aramean army. Uh, they've been going back and forth for a while now, as a matter of fact. You could see in 1 Kings 20 or 22 that, that battle reports uh, kind of bookend and, and, and are all around chapter 21. If, if anything, our chapter this morning is a slightly jarring and abrupt um, pause in the battle account suddenly the narrator for some reason doesn't want to talk about this battle anymore he wants to talk about a certain man who owned a vineyard in Jezreel and so all of the action is paused now you will remember from yesterday's news of course that Ahab the king of Israel had won a battle a terrific battle but he came home curiously not looking like a king who had just won a battle. Matter of fact, you can see it there in 1 Kings 20, 43. He wins the battle, but he comes home sullen and enraged. Matter of fact, maybe that was the heading you read yesterday. King wins, but sullen and enraged. What's going on? Downcast in victory. What's next? Well, today's news is, is very interesting news. Perhaps you might even call it more important news than war. Today's news, the headline reads, The King Calls for Citywide Fast. Everything is paused for a fast. Now, what is a fast? Well, a a fast is is an act of going without food or something like that. It's an act of self-humbling. It is often done to set aside time for intensive prayer to God. You usually fast when something terrible is happening in your life. It happens in the Bible nationally or citywide, and and usually it suggests that there is a recognized sin against God. 
We have done something horrible and we are seeking the Lord's mercy and compassion through fasting, set aside time of prayer. It's important to fast. It's more important than continuing the battle because sin can cause you to lose the battle. Sin can cause your crops to not grow. So we pause everything for a fast. And maybe perhaps you're saying as you're reading and sipping, this must be why the king went home so sullen and enraged yesterday. But what's suspicious here? Well, I mean, you're just reading the newspaper, but when we're reading from way above, we know the background a little bit. But verse 9, something is suspicious here. And notice, verse 9 says, she is calling a fast. Not he, but she. That is, of course, referring to the woman who made the wicked witch of the West run for cover, Jezebel herself. She was calling a fast. Now, one glance at uh, Jezebel's bio page on her website would give you the instant question, is Ahab trying to be as evil as possible? We can read her bio page in 1 Kings 16, 30-31. I'll read it for you. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Now it happened as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, as a wife, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Is Ahab trying to be as evil as possible? Based on his choice of wife, yes. I remember this radio show, and this is a transition. I remember this radio show as a, as a kid growing up. Radios were things in cars. You listened to news. Um, and it, it was called Paul Harvey News. Now, some of you, the older ones, are nodding in, in appreciation of this reference, and that's why I gave it to you. The newer ones are like, you're an idiot. I'm never listening to you again. Maybe, perhaps, if you're older, though, you, you remember how he gave the news. It wasn't just that he reported the news, but he gave you almost the context of the news. You felt like you knew the behind-the-scenes picture on what is happening in the world today. He had these clever turns of phrase that he would use. He, he, he was really good at wordsmithing, you could say. He had this kind and gentle and trustworthy Midwestern voice. Because everybody from the Midwest is great. <laughs> and maybe perhaps you remember his, his finish, the way he concluded his report every single day. It was the same way, and it was so pleasing. Paul Harvey, good day. That was it. Or maybe you are younger in this audience and you have no idea who this guy is and you don't care at all. But let me just tell you this. That's okay. You don't need to care about Paul Harvey, but I want you to know something about him, and that is his most famous line that he would say, that he's almost known for. You say Paul Harvey's name, and to those of you who know who Paul Harvey is, this line would come into your head. And that line is, and now the rest of the story. You've heard the news, you've heard the headlines, but let's talk about the rest of the story. 
What is the rest of the story here in our passage? What's happening? Why is she calling a fast and he so grumpy? Let's get the rest of the story. Jump back over to verse 1. Ha, you thought I was going to skip verse 1. You were wrong. 21 verse 1. Now it happened after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab uh, spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If it is good in your sight, I I will give you the price of it in money. Sure, we have lots of reasons to not like Ahab, once again, here he seems to be acting like a king would be known to act, always seeking more lands, always seeking more horses, as we know of kings. But let's give him credit, because we can't give him credit very many times. Let's give him credit. At least, he's asking first. He's not just plowing through Naboth's vineyard, taking it. He's actually asking. And if we stop and consider his request at first blush, Ahab's offer to Naboth sounds surprisingly reasonable at first blush. For example, look, Naboth's vineyard is right next door to his house. This isn't just Ahab going after whatever he can get hundreds of miles away. No, it's, it's right next door. It's convenient. Hey, I, I want to you know, connect a water slide to my pool. It's convenient. It's right next door. And notice also, he is... He's a good man. He just wants to uh, build a vegetable garden out of it, right? He, he, he's wanting to do something good, something wholesome, you could say. But, but notice this. He is even willing to pay a high price for it. He's willing to give money in exchange for the vineyard. He's even offering a better vineyard in place of this vineyard. This is a surprisingly reasonable offer if you're a Canaanite. You see, Canaanites, the the neighbors of Israel that were also living in the land, uh, they saw their own land as just that, personal property. That's the way the Canaanites thought. I can sell my land when I don't want it. I can buy your land when you don't want it. I can make you a really good offer on your land, and and you can give me your land in exchange for that money. That's how a Canaanite thought about their land. You can do with your own property as you deem fit. But how does an Israelite think about their land? You guessed it, differently. Israelites had a whole different attitude about their land entirely. We're not going to turn there, but let me just summarize. Leviticus 25.23. The land, of course, in Leviticus 25 is stated as the Lord's land. Israel was to live in the Lord's land. Leviticus 25.23 says, as sojourners and as foreign residents on God's property... Now, God, all throughout Leviticus 25, instituted various practices to teach and remind his people of this central truth. You are not on your own property. You're sojourners on my property. 
Thus we have the year of Jubilee. We've got the sabbatical year. All of these are meant to, to cement and drill into the consciousness of Israel that this is not your home. It's my home. You are just a tenant on it. So Leviticus, for example, 25-23 says this, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me. So what does this mean? Faithful loyalty to God then meant that you saw yourself that way. And Israel was to see themselves as a slave of God on his land. Faithfulness to God in dwelling on the land was ultimately acting as though it really didn't ultimately belong to you. It was on loan from God to you. All of your activities in this land were to be done in a sense of this is the Lord's, or I am doing this as an act of worship to the Lord, whether that's plowing my field or raising my family. This is the Lord's property, and I am serving Him. That applies really easily to us, actually. We, like Israel, are to see ourselves and the things in our lives as on loan from God. Whether that's family, money, or our personal possessions, all things are to be ultimately seen as belonging to the Lord. Lord, this is truly yours. I am just taking care of it for a while. You have given it to me for a season, and when you deem fit, you will take it away. It's not my job to hang on to it for as long as I can. It's my job to be faithful in the moments and times that you have given me on this land. That's your job. And that was Israel's job as well. As an act of worship to God to not permanently sell their possessions. And and notice, this is the tone and sense of of Naboth's response to Ahab and his reasonable request. Notice how Israelite it sounds, how faithful it sounds. Verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Yahweh forbid. You could also say, may it never be. Naboth's response here, do you hear it? It sounds like a response of covenant loyalty. May it be far from me to be disloyal to my God and disregard his way. It's almost as if Naboth is saying, I would never, I would never curse myself in that way. You can see him kind of say it again. It's repeated in verse 4, um, a reported speech of Naboth in verse 4. He basically says in verse 4, I will certainly never ever begin to give you the inheritance of my father. Far be it from me to be disloyal to my God that I am in covenant with. This land isn't mine to give and sell. It's an inheritance from God to my fathers and my children after me. I will be faithful to Yahweh. In other words, Naboth refused Ahab's offer, not because it wasn't a good deal for him personally, not because he had a thing or a a little feud against Ahab, 
No, he refused Ahab's reasonable request because of God's word. Because of faithfulness to Yahweh. And notice, just notice the vintage Ahab response we get to the word of God in his life. Verse 4, what does Ahab do? So Ahab came into his house, get this, get this, sullen and enraged. See 20.43. He came home to his house, sullen and enraged, just like he did from the battle, because, and note this, of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and ate no food. This is... This is just vintage Ahab. This is how Ahab always responds to any word from the Lord, by the way. This is how Ahab actually responded to the word of the prophet in verses 43 of chapter 20. A prophet rebuked him for not doing something correctly in battle, and he went home sullen and enraged. And you will even see in 1 Kings 23, uh, 7-8, that Ahab has this animosity towards prophets who do not speak positive and encouraging things to him. Ahab doesn't like the Word of God, because the Word of God is always messing with Ahab's business. Ahab is angry. He is angry at Naboth. He is angry at Naboth's God. And he is angry at this God's dumb rules about personal property rights. So he goes home and he sulks and he doesn't eat. But once again, give him credit where we can, at least Ahab still doesn't respond by taking Naboth's land by army. At least he appears to slow down because of God's word. Can't do it. God's word. Groan. We can't say the same thing about Ahab's fetching wife. You remember her? Bio page like a dream. She not only despised the word of God, but despised anyone who slightly slowed down their life because of the Word of God. She was never slowed in her plans by the words or the warnings of Yahweh God of Israel. If anything, God's words and God's warnings just inspired her evil. Let's take a look. Check out verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it? that your spirit is so sullen and that you are not eating food. So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now exercise kingship over Israel? Stop right there. Just think about this for a second. Think about this. I, 
I think she's mocking him and she's despising him all at once, right? Remember, she was the daughter of a king herself. And it almost feels like you you can hear the the sarcasm and the biting undertones in her voice as she is speaking right now. It's almost as if you can hear her saying, Oh, Ahab. Daddy didn't let a little thing like a local tribal deity or a peasant stop him from getting what he ever wanted. You're such a pathetic excuse for a king. Actually, verse verse 7, it's it's hard to say if that's a question or an accusation, a statement. She is being sarcastic. You are no real king. And of course, she probably also added in her own mind and heart, why did I ever let mother talk me into marrying you? That's probably not there. But, you know, she has a view of a king who is not stopped by anything or anyone or any god or any law. You just offer another sacrifice, appease that god, and go take what you want. What a pathetic king of Israel you are. Then we read the rest of verse 7. Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be merry. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And then notice this, with ease and energy, Jezebel pulls off the greatest vineyard heist, to my knowledge, on record. I googled it last night. This doesn't happen every day. So when it happens, take note. Notice her methods and the the clear purpose behind her actions in this vineyard heist. Verse 8, she wrote in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters saying, call for a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two vile men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him so that he will die. Notice, verse 8, what's she trying to do here? She uses Ahab's name and seal. She, she wants these instructions to sound royal. She wants them to look as though they are coming from Ahab himself. This is made to be a matter of legal obedience. Or can I say it this way? She is making this for the, the people of Israel a matter of essential covenant loyalty. Why do I say that? Because Proverbs 24, 21 through 22 says, My son Yahweh, oh sorry, fear Yahweh and the king. Do not associate with those who change, for suddenly their disaster will rise, and who knows the upheaval that will come that comes from both of them or you could look over at uh, uh, Exodus 22 verse 28 which this proverb is probably playing off of where it says you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people right to be loyal to be honoring to your ruler was a matter of covenant loyalty she is writing in Ahab's pen to make this a matter of covenant loyalty. But notice also verse 9, she calls for a fast. Once again, 
Look at, look at verse 9. She's not calling for a feast. She's calling for a fast. She's not calling for a social celebration. She's not calling for drunkenness or happiness. She's calling for mourning, for sorrow. She is likening this to a national disaster. You see in 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, Samuel and all of Israel say, in a fast we have sinned against Yahweh. Or in 2 Chronicles 20, 2 and 4, when the, when the multitude of Moabites and Ammonites are coming against King Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem, he calls Judah to fasting. This is the tone she wants. We need to fast. There is a great sin among us. And look at this touch in, in, in verse 10. She sets up two worthless men. Why two? Because she needs two witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6 says a judgment had to be established by two witnesses. What is the purpose between this great vineyard heist? It's to make it look legit. It's to make it look legal. It's to make it look godly, to make it look righteous. And of course, in verse 10, notice the crime. What did Naboth do that was so evil? He cursed God and the king. Once again, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. Jezebel is making Naboth out to look like an Achan. A troubler of Israel. And notice the way she does this. She also does this in a way that makes Ahab look righteous for removing Naboth. You remember Achan, right? Destroyed his whole family for his greed. And the righteous man, the good man, the just man is the one that gets rid of Achan. Gets rid of Naboth. How does this plan work for her? Verse 11 tells us, So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which he had sent them. They called for a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two vile men came in and sat before him. And the vile man testified against him, against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king And they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones, and he died. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. The plan works perfectly. Everybody in Israel thinks Ahab is the good guy, and Naboth is the bad guy. If anything, Ahab is just doing everybody a civil service by taking this vineyard on himself what a good guy that ahab notice the result verse 15 now it happened that when jezebel heard that naboth had been stoned and was dead jezebel said to ahab arise take possession of the vineyard that was easy sorry added that in there uh take possession of the vineyard of naboth the jezreelite which he refused to give you for money for naboth is not alive but dead. 
Now it happened that when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. This guy Ahab. What a pathetic guy. I I could think of so many names to call this guy, and I will. Let's think about boil child of a king. Always getting what he wants. Mopes around like a baby. Gets his wife to do the dirty work for him. What a guy. And notice this also, the epitome of a hypocrite. Because what is he doing while everybody is fasting and mourning, seeking the Lord's help? He is feasting. Meanwhile, Naboth, the covenant-keeping Israelite, the faithful, is cut down like a sheep for the slaughter. This is how it feels often to be the Lord's and God's people. The wicked prosper. They eat up the righteous. And the godly suffer and are struck down. They are, as it were, as it says in Psalm 44, appointed as sheep for the slaughter. Psalm 44 verse 22 says this, But for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. God's people feel this. And often God's people even feel the question coming to their mind again and again, where is my God in this? Is He on vacation? Is He sleeping? Has He joined the other team? That's how Job felt. Job 16, verse 11, striking words. In his pain and his anguish, Job says this, God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he grasped me by the neck and and has shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. Why is it that God seems like my enemy? Why is it that God is using me for his daily target practice? What's the point, in other words? Why does God do this? Why does God not stop this? Well, once again, we need a little bit more of that Paul Harvey rest of the story. The Bible does give us the rest of the story. But warning for you this morning, warning for you this morning, it's not the kind of ending you're going to like but it's the ending that you desperately need. Where's Yahweh in this? Where is God in this? Whose side is Yahweh on? Well, we see very quickly, He is right here 
all along. He is right there in the vineyard, seeing the whole thing as it goes down. What is Yahweh up to? Why is Yahweh allowing this to happen? Well, first off, let me, let me just explain something real quick. The purpose of kings, the purpose of kings is not just to record history. It, it's history with a sledgehammer at the end of it. It's here to preach something to you. It's very selective in the content that it chooses because it wants to tell you something about your God. First and second kings have kind of a a purpose of showing you the reliability of the Word of God through the messengers of God, that is the prophets. Everything that the prophets say comes to pass. And Kings records this so that Israel, who is in exile, will know the Lord has fulfilled His Word to me in bringing me into exile. And that means the Word of the prophets are also reliable in the good news that they speak to me. God's prophets are faithful. That's why Kings is written to show you the reliability of God's Word. And sometimes the Lord, our Lord, allows evil to also happen in order to show us His sufficiency and reliability. And that brings us to the immediate purpose. God is here and present in the affliction of His people. He is there. He is all-seeing. And He proves Himself again and again to be the avenging God so that His people need not avenge themselves. This is for your good. This is for your good so that you may know when God seems absent, He isn't. He is there, present, working, seeking His glory and your good. Notice where Yahweh is in all of this. Verse 17. Notice when He sends His prophet. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria, behold. He is in the the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. Just just notice the present tense statement there. God is speaking and sending Elijah the prophet while Ahab apparently is currently in the vineyard of Naboth actively taking possession. He already knew what was happening. He was sending his prophet perhaps while it was happening. And notice God's judgment in verse 19. And you shall speak to him saying, Thus says Yahweh, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. So in other words, it may seem like God is distant. It may seem like God is blind. It may seem like God is behind the times or distracted or away on a journey. But He is never out of touch. He is never 
behind the times. He's never bogged down in yesterday's news. He's ever-present. He's ever-up-to-date. He's up-to-speed. He's never lagging behind in his news feed. He is never behind in his mentions. He is perfectly present and sees all that we are going through and knows it all. He's even ahead of the curve. Jesus, our Lord himself, says this in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And by the way, the application of that is not, so don't even worry about prayer, because the Lord says in verse 9, pray therefore. He knows what you need before you even ask. Therefore, pray. He is never missing anything. Notice the swift justice that he promises. Verse 21. Behold, I will bring evil upon you. He says this to Ahab now. And I will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of uh, Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel to sin. Of Jezebel also has Yahweh spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the cities, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the fields, the birds of the sky will eat. Justice is coming. And, and notice the, the repetition. Verse 19 has it twice. Notice the repetition of the, the, the phrase dogs. 19 twice, 23 once, 24 once. Ahab and his house are promised to fall and be eaten by the dogs. If you know your Israelite history, you know that this means it will be a disgraceful death. It will be a shameful death. It is the most undignified end conceivable for a Jew, perhaps. Notice Ahab's initial response. Notice his initial posture towards the Word of God. Verse 20, as soon as he lays eye on Elijah, what does he say to him? Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah, of course, says to him, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Notice, once again, we get a picture into Ahab's heart, God's word, or God's messengers through which his word comes are always seen by Ahab to be his biggest problem. But the point of this, and the point that this passage is making to us, is God's word isn't your problem. God's messengers aren't your problem, as imperfect as they are. You are your biggest problem. You have sold yourself to do what is evil? These things like God's word, God's messengers, circumstances in your life are just revealing your spiritual nature. And be sure your, your sin will be found out. You are found by God in your sin because your sin is like heat that attracts the heat-seeking missile of God's 
judgment and justice, you will be found out. I have found you because you have sold yourself to evil. And God always finds. But notice this. Before we go on, before we see Ahab's glorious end, what we're expecting to happen, notice the narrative pauses. It stops. Verse 25, surely the the narrative pauses in order to explain, balloon Ahab's evil. It says this, verse 25, surely there was no one who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, enticed. And he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom Yahweh dispossessed before the sons of Israel had even arrived. Notice the the narrator stops here to emphasize how despicable and evil Ahab was. There's one thing he wants us to know before we can continue. This guy was bad news. There was none like him, he says. He sold himself to do evil. He was worse than the Amorites. He was worse than the people that got kicked out of the land. That's not a good thing to be said about you. And once again, we just want to pour on Ahab, right? We hate this guy. He's a big baby. He mopes until he gets his way. He gets his wife to do his dirty work for him. Well, he's feasting. Everybody else is fasting. We hate this guy. It's like that. It's like that neighborhood bully. You ever have one of those? I had a really bad neighborhood bully as a kid. Now it was kind of weird in my memory because I'm still this tall, white, skinny kid, and I'm sure this bully was shorter than me. But man, he was a mean bully kid. I was terrified to go outside. I once had this go kart that we'd we'd, we'd ride down the the driveway into the street. <laughs> it's pretty fun. They wanted to ride it, these bullies. They always threatened to take it. One time they, they, they wrote, they wrote, I don't know how they wrote it, but they wrote somewhere around my, my house, I just remember saying, your go-kart is mine. I saw them walking down the street, I would hide. And remember the one day. Remember the one day they were picking on me in front of my house, and there was these other kids that came down the road with these big metal poles and they began to chase this neighborhood bully and the neighborhood bully i've never seen him do this in my entire life starts screaming and yelling and running the other way he he jumps over the fence right across the street into the parking lot across from our house and he run he just cleans gets out of there and i remember i ran inside because i was a coward looking behind the drapes but i couldn't help but feeling that feeling inside of me, yes, yes. And I also remember being so shocked and appalled when I saw neighborhood parents coming out of their houses to stop this. Why are you stopping this? This is the vengeance of the Lord. I want 
him to get it too. I don't like this Ahab. But here is where it gets very uncomfortable. Look at what happens next. Verse 27. Now it happened when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Now, to be pretty honest, I can make a pretty solid biblical case for why you should not care about this man's gesture of sorrow. I could make a very convincing biblical case for why this repentance is not true and the Lord should get him anyway. It's not easy, it's not hard to do. Just read the Bible. This guy, Ahab, had it coming to him. Yes. Don't look. God, cover your eyes. We don't care about this part. But I can't get around what the Lord himself does next. I can't escape. Yahweh doesn't do what I want Him to do. Yahweh doesn't leave Ahab to himself. God sees this display. God shows up and God speaks. And how does God speak? With outrageous grace outrageous grace. 28. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. I can't get over this. I cannot get over this, and I refuse to let you go this morning until you cannot get over this as well. Do you see how ready and eager our God is to see and accept the self-humbling of a sinner before Him? Can you see how ready God is to accept the self-humbling of such an evil sinner before Him. It's almost like God is looking for any sign, any excuse, any reason to show off His greatness and His graciousness. It's almost as if God isn't looking for a list of qualities or qualifications in Ahab to prove that his repentance is real or his humbling is real. He is just responding to the self-humbling of Ahab. It's almost as if this is the first thing that is essential. 
This is the first thing that is required. That's what we see. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are. What is first required of you is not to clean up your life, but to humble yourself first before God. Beginning a right relationship with God begins in self-humiliation. This is who the Lord looks at. You won't get anywhere with God apart from humility. Isaiah 66.2 says this, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You could look at 1 Peter 5, 5-6. God actually promises to actively oppose the proud, but exalt the humble. He says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. You won't get anywhere with God until you first humble yourself and come to Him. But here, here, right here now, is the powerful lesson that Ahab has to teach you. It's, it's, a, it's a lesson of lesser to greater applications. Lesser to greater applications. Lesser. You guys like the Kern County Fair. Wait until you experience the Wisconsin State Fair. If you like this, you're going to love this. Notice this. If God, if God will notice and receive the humility of such a man like this, how much more will he receive the self-humbling of his own people, his own children, who are purchased by the blood of Christ, elected before eternity passed by God in love, how much more will God be eager to receive us when we humble ourselves under God? When we don't try to list up all these impressive things we've also done while we're kind of sugarcoating our sin and bringing it in. No, but when we humble ourselves before God, how much more will God receive you? It's a lesser to greater. Humility is the supreme virtue that we need. Piper calls humility a creaturely Virtue, it is the proper posture of anyone who is created by God. We are created from dust. And we do not know our true place before God until we return to dust before Him. The creature who doesn't recognize his Maker, the creature who doesn't bow himself before God, is not living in right relationship to his God. You will never know fulfillment. You will never know fullness. You will never know peace. You will never know anything that you were created for until you begin in humility. We have this saying in youth ministry. I've mentioned it before. Thanksgiving is the cheat code of the Christian life. It's a great saying. Think about it for a while. Go home, look up every reference that your Bible has for Thanksgiving, and you'll instantly see that 
Thanksgiving is the cheat code of the Christian life. For those of you who are non-gamers, a cheat code is a code that you put in while you're playing the game in order to enable you to access new abilities in your character or advance to new levels. That's a cheat code. It, it, it gives you the opportunity to instantly and quickly gain an advantage. What do, what do we get with Thanksgiving? Why is it the cheat code of the Christian life? Well, it makes peace in conflict. Thanksgiving fights anxiety. Thanksgiving defeats pornography. That's just a list of three. But here we have an, another exciting thought that's similar to that thought. Humility is seen in our Bible as the essential quality that puts you into a proper, creaturely posture before God. It puts you into the posture where your, your creator, your past creator, and your future judge can become your present savior, but only through humility. Humility puts you into the posture of seeing your world clearly, truly, biblically. It's, it's like you, with humility, are taking off the blinders. It's, for those of you that are Matrix fans, and I'm not saying I am one, it's as if you are taking the red pill. That is what humility gives you. It will be uncomfortable to see the world as it really is, but you will ultimately see yourself, your world, and your God correctly. And what happens when you see God accurately? What happens when you see yourself correctly and all of the things that God does for you correctly? Your life is filled to overflowing with thanksgiving. Who am I that you have brought me thus far? Who am I that you would be gracious to me? I deserve to be judged Humility, in other words, is the key to the cheat code of the Christian life. Or to say it another way, as one of my leaders said at our junior-senior retreat, humility is the cheat code to the cheat code. Now, if there's ever a good cheat code, that's the one you want to get. Do you have humility in your life? You want humility. Humility puts you into an instant right relationship with God. Humility brings you before God regardless of what you have done. And God, we see, is quick to hear and quick to receive the one, the humble heart that bows before Him because God is even quick to hear the evil Ahab humble himself. How much more will He do it with you? How much more? Now, there's a ton more I could say about Ahab. God didn't respond to Ahab this way, just blind to all of Ahab's sin. Ahab didn't escape all of the consequences of his evilness. But this, is, this passage is, is simply here to show us the greatness of our God and to encourage us to respond. In the end, Ahab can't seem to dig himself out of his own hole. In, in, second, in 1 Kings 22, he, 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 he kind of deserts God. He, he shows us that you, you don't just 
do humility once and then forget about God, but humility is to be the ongoing posture of your life. Even though Ahab had this moment of humility and and God responded to that moment, he didn't live a changed life towards God or towards God's word. And in the end, this random arrow you see in 1 Kings 22, 34, like a heat-seeking missile, finds Ahab out. But this all should really, really encourage you. If God receives the self-humbling of Ahab, how much more will he receive your self-humbling? Two applications. Number one, don't hold God's grace arrogantly. Don't say, this is grace for me but for nobody else. That's not viewing yourself rightly. That's not viewing your God rightly. And number two, if you are outside of grace, if you are hardening your heart against your God, do not linger while grace is waiting. God's righteous judgment will be revealed in your sin, either in your judgment or at the cross of Christ. Do not linger while grace is waiting. Do not linger while God is ready and eager to receive repentant sinners home. Not for your sake, not for your righteousness, but for the sake of Christ and His righteousness on your behalf. Do not linger. Come to God's grace. God's grace that is greater than all of our sin. God's grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Come to God's grace today. Come to the amazing grace of our God that saves wretched, wretched sinners. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that we would be a people flabbergasted by your grace, humbled by your grace, floored by your grace, and transformed by your grace. We thank you for this time, in, in this service, that we get to contemplate these things and be humbled and even shamed by it. I pray that you would use this message to reveal to us our sins and our prejudices and, and our pride And you'd also use this message to strengthen us as a body here, to strengthen our fellowship, even around this table this afternoon. Thank you for your your provision. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for even giving us this time to eat this food together and enjoy one another. May your grace be our theme forever and ever. Amen.